Tonight we're in the book of James chapter 5. James chapter 5, and I'll be reading verse number 16 once again. James chapter 5 and verse 16. The Bible says, Confess your faults one to another, and pray for one, one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Let us pray. Father, thank you once again for your precious word. Thank you for the great salvation that you have given to us. Thank you for your amazing love and for the sacrifice that you made so that we can have life and have it more abundantly. Lord, I pray tonight as we look into your word that you would speak to each and every heart. May we become more acquainted with your love and may your love motivate us to love you more and to love those around us and let the love that has been shed abroad in our hearts to truly impact those to whom we come into contact. The Lord, take full control. I trust that you'll give me the words you'll have me to say. Cleanse me of sin, empty me of self, fill me with your precious Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would save some lost soul, stir the heart of every believer, and we'll thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You may be seated. As we look around at our world and we are continually reminded of the fact that life is uncertain, I trust that this ever-present reminder would motivate us to understand the importance of relationships. Relationships. When a person passes, dies, when you think about it, what can we really hold on to as it relates to that person? The thing that we cannot, that cannot rather be taken away from us is really the relationship that you had with that person the type of relationship, the, the memories that you shared, the bond that you had with that person, that, that is the thing that, that lives on in our hearts. The nature of the relationship is the thing that brings either the most comfort in time of loss or it brings the most regret when that person passes. That is why we are to embrace days like Mother's Day and special days and not just let the extent of our relationships and the expression of our love be limited to these days, but to continue on because when that person passes, those are the things that are going to carry on in our hearts and in our lives. The reality, my friend, is that God created us for relationships. First of all, relationship with him and then relationships with other people. As much as people chase money and fame and a variety of different things in life hoping to find true happiness, the type of relationships that we have are what truly determine our level of happiness and joy in this life. The most important, of course, when it comes to relationships, being a relationship with Almighty God. 
Amen? Relationships are an important aspect of our stewardship because without relationships, get this, we cannot effectively reach people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's for this reason that James, in this chapter number five, deals with the importance of relationships as he addresses uh, the overall theme of stewardship. We have been looking at this chapter for quite some time under this theme of stewardship, uh, but in the verses that we are currently examining, particularly verses 13 to 19, you would see an emphasis there on relationships. Relationships. James understood that, that the church of the living God, if it's going to effectively minister Relationships must be prioritized. Notice that if a church is going to effectively minister, notice we have looked at the aspect of personal responsibility. In verse 13 and 14, uh, the emphasis there is that uh, each person must do his or her part. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Each person must embrace their personal responsibility if a church is going to effectively minister to the lives of people. But we notice as well that a church that's going to minister must be a place of reliance. While we must do our individual part, there must be dependence on each other to be able to get the job done. That's why he said, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. But we notice that James prioritizes relationships in verse number 16. He begins this verse and he says, confess your faults one to another. Now, James says something that oftentimes we are hesitant to do. We're hesitant to let others be aware of our shortcomings. Let others be aware that we are also aware of the things that we would like to be better. We would like to be different. And I began last time speaking on this particular portion of this verse. And lo and behold, this past week, just to emphasize how appropriate, how relevant, how practical the Bible is to our lives. I was looking at ESPN, the website, and I saw a clip It was a headline, and I decided to click on it. And the headline said, Pitcher and umpire exchange mea culpas. And I said, I wanted to see what this was about. Just so you understand, it really was pretty much saying that the pitcher and the umpire in the sport of baseball exchanged really saying they are sorry. So I wanted to say, what was this about? And I looked at the video clip and read the article. And I know we don't play baseball here, but I think we kind of, the emphasis of baseball is not really the, 
the, the focus of what the story was talking about. But it emphasized, and I'm going to share it with you, how confessing your faults one to another is so practical when it comes to alleviating confusion and strife and contention. So here's what took place. The pitcher was pitching to, of course, the hitter, and he had a two-strike count. And of course, three strikes and you're out. But not only did he have a two-strike count, but there were two people who were already out in the inning. Now, if you're not familiar with baseball, if two people are out, it only takes three outs for an inning to be completed. Right? So he pitched the strike or the ball, pitched the ball, and the ball was a strike. Right? So the ball passed over the plate. It was right at the knees. All of the people or the, 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 the individuals on the fielding team thought that it was a strike. Now, the umpire has to actually call the strike for it to be officially deemed a strike. But the ball was so clearly a strike that the pitcher and all of the individuals on the fielding team assumed that it would have been a strike and they started walking off the field for the close of the inning. And the pitcher was already on his way to the dugout when he realized that the umpire did not call a strike. And he put his glove to his face and he was like shocked. Now, he could have reacted in a way demonstratively to the umpire and embarrassed the umpire because even the announcers thought it was a strike. Every, all, everybody in the, in the stadium thought it was a strike. And he composed himself and walked back to the pitcher's mound and continued the inning. And I know that he must have been upset and frustrated because that's the end of the inning. Now, thankfully, he got the batter out and no runs were conceded as a result because that would have made a bad situation worse. Now, here's what took place. When he, they, they walked off the field now, the umpire realized that he had made an error in judgment. And to appease the situation as they were between innings, as they were walking off the field, he looked at the pitcher and he did this. He patted his chest and he said, was really saying, my mistake. My mistake. And the pitcher himself also looked at the umpire and said as well, demonstrating, because they didn't have time to have a conversation. He said, I understand. And as I read the article, what they were saying, and even the announcers said, that was so mature of the umpire to admit his mistake. And the pitcher also admitted to the umpire afterwards, and he said to him, I'm sorry because my reaction could have also exacerbated the situation because it could have looked as if I was standing you up and I was making you look bad. And both of them ultimately ended up apologizing to each other and appeased the situation that could have been far much different. And I thought of that situation and I thought of the message that I had just preached on last Sunday night, talking about confessing your faults one to another. And I thought of how appropriate, how right, how relevant the Bible is in every situation. 
Uh, and we, we looked at this uh, last week, and I'm going to continue it because God has given me some additional thoughts. And we thought of the fact that why should we confess our faults? We're, we're talking about when a, an offense is created, when, a, when an offense is caused. Uh, listen, we have my figure. We have justifiable reasons to, to be upset and to, to, to react and to respond in a manner that we think is appropriate. But here's what confessing our faults one to another does. It clears the obstacle of pride. Oftentimes we are afraid to admit this as if we figure that we have a, a, a onus on, in, in, in ensuring that somehow we have never erred. And we can't, even if we know we have, I can't let others know that I've erred. Well, listen, whether we admit it or not, everybody else knows that we have not and never will be perfect. So it it clears the obstacle of pride, but here's what else it does. It shows concern for the other person. As I think of that scenario that I just described in sports, the pitcher himself said afterwards, I mean, after the umpire has admitted his fault, that helped the situation. Because it showed concern for the fact that he had done what was right. He had done what he was supposed to do. But it also creates an opportunity for peacefulness. There's no reason for any continual rancor because the individual has acknowledged their wrong. But here's something else that, 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 that I, I saw as I thought about this very important admonition. And this is critical. That when we confess our faults, especially when we are aware of them, that confessing owns the problem. Confessing owns the problem. Now, let me give you some examples. And listen, all of us are guilty at some point in time of of, of where we have not owned our wrongs in situations. Now, let me give you some examples of confessing that did not own the problem. You know, sometimes we tend to make an apology and it really did not do what the apology was supposed to do. Now, here are some examples. I did it because of what you did. You ever heard that one? I did it. You know what? If you hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done this. Now, here's why that doesn't own the problem. Because what you're really saying, it's your fault. If you had not done that, none of this would ever have happened. It's a sequence. We wouldn't have gotten to step two if step one didn't happen and you were the one who did step one. Isn't that what we say sometimes? In an attempt to confess, we actually have not owned our part of the problem. Now, here's another one that that happens sometimes. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've experienced it. Maybe you've been the one to present this. I'm not determining either, but I've heard this one. I'm sorry that you are hurt. You ever heard that one? That sounds good, but it's not really owning the problem. I'm sorry that you are hurt. Here's what it says. It it somewhat masks the situation because it makes it seem like, well, uh, I don't want you to be hurt. You are hurt. But the truth is what it's really saying is 
you being hurt didn't really have anything to do with me. The problem is that you're just too sensitive. So, you know what? Let me soothe you. I'm sorry that you are hurt. That's not owning the problem. That's not confessing one's faults. Now, here's another one. You may say, this one sounds pretty decent, but, and it can ultimately get there, but here's another one. I'm sorry that I hurt you. You say, Pastor, that sounds fairly good. You can get a passing grade. But here's how this could also be interpreted. I'm sorry that I hurt you. What I did hurt you. But the thing is, and by the way, we don't say all these things, but it could be implied. I've done it to other people and it didn't hurt them. But I did the same thing and it hurt you. So I'll have to make an adjustment for you, but I really didn't do anything wrong. But since it hurt you, I'll try to make some changes because that's how you are. Doesn't really own the problem. I want us to turn to Psalm number 51. And I want to draw some very brief observations from what really owning a problem and owning our faults, what it looks like. In Psalm number 51, we'll be very familiar with this passage of scripture where David is approached by the prophet Nathan, came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And by the way, when we read this psalm, we should recognize that this doesn't happen a long time after David had done what he did. Psalm 51 Notice how David owns the problem. How he recognizes his individual personal responsibility to what took place. Look at verse number one. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, look at this, blot out what? My transgressions. Look at verse number two. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest behold I was shaped in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me there is no mistaking the fact that David owns this problem he says I me mine listen it's what I have done. There's no excuses here and passing it on anybody else. He owns the problem. And here's why 
owning the problem is so important. Because when we own the problem, notice here finally tonight, that change is often the product. The reason why oftentimes we don't change the way we are supposed to change is because we have not owned the problem. Because when I've identified something that I'm aware of as it relates to a fault, I'm admitting it. I'm also reminded that it is a fault that I need to work on. And here's why this is so important. Because they are linked. Because the reason why oftentimes we don't admit the fault is because we don't truly, genuinely believe that it exists. And so if we don't believe that something genuinely exists, then there's not a reason to actually work on it. There's nothing to change. But when I confess it, I'm letting others and be aware of it. I'm letting others actually hold me accountable. And as a result, I'm more likely to change the behavior that is indeed a fault. Why? Because I now want to change it. But here's something else I want to draw your attention to in Psalm 51. That in order to change that fault, guess what? You have to want it changed. You have to want to be different. And because David wanted to change, guess what? He asked God to help him change. He got serious about it. Look at Psalm 51 and verse number 7. After he embraced his fault, well, not embraced it in a, in a, in a, in a, in a way that, that, that endears it to him, but owns it, he says, God, I want you to help me change. Psalm 51 and verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Look at verse number 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Look at verse number 12. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. No, no, for the faults that God has exposed to us, for the faults that we are aware of, uh, are we serious enough about changing that we would say to God, God, I I want you in on helping me to be different. And here's the final thing in changing. It's one thing to have the fault, but notice in David's confession, He wanted the alternative. You see, you have to replace the fault with right behavior. We have to replace the thing that displeases God with something that will please God. David wanted the alternative. Look at verse number 12. He says, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Look at verse number 14. He says, deliver me from but blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Look, look at the alternative that he wants. And my tongue shall sing aloud of thy 
righteousness. Look at verse number 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. David did not want to have a heart that was hard to God. He did not want to have a heart that was stout, adamant, and rebellious. He wanted a heart that was sensitive to God and to his word. David showed clearly that if we're going to change, we have to be willing to confess where we had fault. This was a situation, of course, between him and God. But the same formula and the recipe applies to our relationships with other people. And when we embrace, or rather, own the things where we have done well. It helps us to actually change and it improves our relationships. You know, relationships are very delicate. They're very complex at times. And they get more complex when we engage in only pointing out somebody else's. You know, the challenge at times in relationships is because we see others' faults more clearly than we see our own. And sometimes when we are trying to reach a resolution, rather than us embrace or emphasize our faults, we are more likely to try to put a floodlight and a spotlight on the other person. And may it be that we own ours. And when everyone does that, it truly helps relationships to be better. It's not easy. Why? Because pride often wears its ugly head. But James is giving us a very simple principle at times hard to put into practice but if we can get past this matter of pride we can truly have improved relationships that will help us collectively in our homes, in our marriages and in our churches to effectively minister to other people the word of God is so relevant. It's so practical. And if we would embrace it more and more, we would recognize how God will bring joy and peace and happiness and love in our relationships with one another and, of course, our relationship with him.